0: Good morning. Let's get started, please. Today's class and tomorrow's class are, um, require some justification. In a sense, they're irrelevant to civil rights litigation. The, uh, the subject of this class is overwhelmingly 42 USC 1983, which is a particular remedial scheme. And we'll spend a good deal of time on attorney's fees, which have a lot to do with how 1983 operates in the real world. The classes this week, and in general, this is not a class about con law. That is, you learn the first day that 1983 supposes a violation of the constitution and that every complaint under 1983 has to allege some constitutional right has been violated or some statutory right. We'll come to that starting on Wednesday. Class Today and Tomorrow are about constitutional law, about the underlying rights that are enforceable by 1983, and it requires a word to say why we're stopping to look at constitutional law in this context and not more generally. Well, if you're worried about uh, damages liability for violations of constitutional rights, as the Supreme Court plainly is worried about, at least in some contexts, there are logically two ways to address concerns one is to limit the remedy that is to constrain the remedial option of damages under 1983 and that is done transubstantively by doctrines such as qualified immunity those doctrines live in 1983 and they apply at least presumptively without differentiation to all the rights that are subject to vindication under 1983 but the other thing you might do is to tailor the definition of rights to the availability of a damages enforcement remedy and I think in the classes we see for today, the materials we see for today and tomorrow you'll see at least the shadow of 1983 Prospect of 1983 influencing the way the underlying constitutional rights have been construed. Uh, today's class is odd for another reason because it is, an, um, at least for people of my vintage, an oddly personal uh, uh, time with respect to Supreme Court justices. There's an article that's cited in the book by David Shapiro. He's now very elderly and probably no longer prominent to you but he's a pretty much of a giant in the field of federal courts and he wrote an article entitled Mr. Justice Rehnquist a preliminary view which is somewhere between an analysis on a screed it is certainly a critical article and in part uh, an ad hominem critical article it's published in the Harvard Law Review which doesn't usually uh, lag for broader topics on which to publish. Um, and it is primarily a response to Paul versus Davis, which produced a very strong uh, negative reaction in the academy and elsewhere. And uh, one of the things I'll try to do is to suggest why that's true and, and then to suggest that there is still a real problem. Part of the reaction to Paul, you all know the, 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 uh, the facts that police, Chiefs got together for some reason, decided to publish a list of active shoplifters. They included someone who'd been arrested, and whose prosecution had been held, which is common for low-level offenses, where it's a, it's a kind of informal probation. If you don't do it again, we won't prosecute. But the consequence was that there was no formal adjudication that he'd ever been a shoplifter, and the designation of active shoplifter was uh, libel per se and clearly actionable as such under state libel law, but this was a 1983 case, and so the libel claim under state tort law gets transmuted into a claim of denial of procedural due process because there was no hearing or proceeding that led to his designation as an active shoplifter. And the court says liberty interest is not protected under the due process clause reputation is not a liberty after it's protected under the due process clause okay one thing that's going on in this case is its disingenuous treatment of precedent the precedents here are not all of a piece but there plainly are precedents favorable to the plaintiff's position in this case which are given short shrift by the majority opinion one is Jenkins versus McKeithen which is about it's, it's about a Louisiana entity called the Labor Management Commission of Inquiry a little bit like the uh, House Committee on Un-American Activities it was sort of a roving investigatory accusatory body of the state of Louisiana And their uh, actions involved very similar labeling of people uh, and the Supreme Court said that they had to provide some procedural protection. It seems plain that that case treated reputation as a kind of liberty interest. The majority more or less ignores it. Brennan says it appears only in a dissembling footnote. More prominent is Wisconsin versus Constantino, 1971, only a few years before Paul versus Davis. Wisconsin versus Constantino involved an odd procedure where people who had been found to be excessive drinkers were posted, and the posting was um, having your name up on a list of people to whom it was uh, illegal to sell liquor. So the posting involved uh, two things simultaneously. It involved a constriction in the opportunity to buy alcohol, but it also involved this public labeling or shaming. And the critical language, which is uh, repeated in both majority and dissents, the critical language from Wisconsin appears on page 229. And this language, of course, was all over the briefs in Paul versus David's. Where a person's good name, reputation, or honor, uh, good name, reputation, honor, or integrity is at stake because of what the government is doing to him, notice and an opportunity to be heard are essential. Now, the plaintiff in this case read that, and the dissent reads it as saying that notice an opportunity to be heard are essential when the government does something that stigmatizes you when they take away the your honor your reputation your good name in other words that reputation is a liberty interest the the majority and i think the majority more or less admits that that's what the wisconsin wisconsin versus constantino court originally meant But the majority says, look, we think that interpretation is troublesomely broad. We can read it narrowly, and we do. We read it to mean that you have to provide procedural due process when someone's legal rights are restricted, and in this case, the person was not only publicly shamed, but also barred from purchasing alcohol, so that there was a constriction of legal rights. David Shapiro said that it is simply impossible to rep- uh, reconcile Paul versus Davis with the precedents. Henry Paul Monaghan, Columbia, wholly startling was what he said of the Supreme Court's treatment of precedents. Now a second objection has to do not with uh, the sort of bona fides of the court's explanation but with the substance of the court's ruling, the policy of the caves and that is the holding that reputation by itself standing alone is not liberty now why does that matter well after Roth versus Board of Regents due process no longer just protects everything that matters that's what one might have thought in 1960 or 65 or 70 but Roth said that the due process clause needs to be read carefully it protects life liberty and property. Life isn't much of an issue. The death penalty requires notice in a hearing. Most of these cases are property cases. They concern government employment and the difficult questions that can arise regarding whether your government job is a property interest or not. But the third category is liberty, and much much of liberty is quite clear. If the government locks you up, that's a loss of liberty. If the government physically punishes you, that doesn't happen very much, but it happens sometimes in schools, that's a loss of liberty. And it doesn't have to be physical confinement. If the government puts you on probation or parole so that your freedom is restricted and you have to report and, and fulfill certain conditions, that also is a loss of liberty. But the court's statement that reputation standing alone was not a loss of liberty was objected to on grounds that it just didn't sound right. After all, as freedom, Brennan makes his point in dissent, is, is the opportunity to purchase alcohol really more important than one's good name? And Brennan goes on to imagine uh, uh, vast and arbitrary powers uh, associated with the government's ability to condemn without actual punishment. Even so, if you look at 233, look at the top of 233, the first paragraph that begins on the page, you see there that even Justice Brennan, who is in full head of steam here, and concerned about not only this case, but about a prospect of something like the House Un-American Activities Committee calling people up and labeling them communist or disloyal or whatever, even he recognizes there's a problem to be dealt with. Look at this first full paragraph. There is no attempt by the court to analyze the question as one of reconciliation of constitutionally protected personal rights and the exigencies of law enforcement. No effort is made to distinguish the defamation that occurs when a grand jury indicts from the defamation that occurs when executive officials arbitrarily, without trial, do not declare a person an active criminal. Well, Brennan is recognizing that there's a problem in the routine defamation of accusation, when someone is accused of being a criminal. That happens all the time, and it necessarily precedes an adjudication, since you have to start somewhere. But Brennan is really here ducking the hard question. The hard question isn't the grand jury, because one could imagine that a court would simply say, well, a grand jury proceeding is ex parte, it's not the usual due process, it's not the way we ordinarily do business with notice and a hearing, but a grand jury proceeding is the process that is due for an indictment. That has a lot of history behind it, if not perhaps a lot of logic. But the great problem is the problem of statements by prosecutors. Prosecutors all the time accuse people, publicly accuse people. We think we found our man. We suspect Mr. So-and-so of having been involved in racketeering and organized crime. And all those statements are injurious to reputation. They're not superficially easy to distinguish from labeling someone an active shoplifter, and yet no one has ever previously thought that the prosecutor had to be all that careful about what was said. After all, prosecutors have some have some function in the courtroom of prosecuting, but they also have a function of communicating to the public. And prosecutors, especially those who are elected, big city prosecutors and, and also United States attorneys, care about that function and spend a good deal of time sometimes having press conferences, engineering the perp walk, especially attractive for white-collar defendants, and other things that are designed to be reputationally harmful that is their point and the question that the Paul dissenters have to figure out is well how do you recognize procedural due process here and not recognize it there that's what Rehnquist is concerned about and the quote that is there are a couple of quotes from this opinion that uh, arise a lot but the quote that is that is um, all the time Cited is on page 227 it's just a it's just a line down near the bottom of the page he is, ex- he is explaining what the plaintiff seeks the plaintiff is here the respondent Respondent, however, has pointing to no specific constitutional guarantee. Rather, he apparently believes that the 14th Amendment's due process clause should proprio vigore extend to him a right to be free of injury when, wherever the state may be characterized as the tortfeasor. But such a reading would make of the 14th Amendment a font of tort law. And that phrase is all the time quoted that the 14th Amendment is not supposed to be a font of tort law to be superimposed upon whatever systems may already be administered by the states and that concern is a concern that has to be taken pretty seriously as Rod Smola said once the critics of Paul have never really explained why it is that 1983 actions alleging a denial of procedural due process are preferable to state toward actions when it comes to things like defamation now what does this, all, all this have to do with 1983? well I ask you to engage on a hypothetical what if 1983 had never been enacted so that damages were not in issue What if the only federal remedy sought here was injunctive relief? That is, what if the plaintiff went to court and said, I've been listed as an active shoplifter and that's not fair, I've never been adjudicated to be a shoplifter and there's been no trial or hearing. I want an injunction against that publication. I want them to take it down. I guess that's sort of quaint, since with the internet you can't really take anything down, but I want you to take it down, take down the accusation that I, take my name off the list of active Soplin. Well, it's really hard to imagine that the court would have balked if that had been the only issue. For me at least, it's really hard to imagine that the court would have dug in and said, no, no, reputation is not a protected liberty interest under the 14th Amendment. If the question had been simply, shall we stop this abusive, libelous listing by a state officer? What's happening here is that the, the case, which is a case about con law, is being driven by the prospect of damages under 1983. That is, the 1983 tail is wagging the constitutional dog. This is a case where the damages remedy has so upset the court because they can't figure out what it, how, to allocate, how it would work across a whole sea of cases that it's actually constraining the interpretation of the Constitution itself to avoid that consequence. And two prominent people, Henry Paul Monaghan and Gerald Gunther, both extremely prominent, uh, henry still prominent, but extremely prominent a generation ago, both of them suggested that somehow Paul versus Davis, they were recognizing that there's a real issue here, that somehow Paul versus Davis should have been resolved under 1983 and not under the Constitution. Neither one of them is a 1983 specialist, and neither one of them had any, had any concrete suggestion about how the problem could be resolved under 1983. But they both saw the interaction and said, you should solve this under 1983. Why? Because that would restrict the remedy of damages without contracting the constitutional right. Now, Paul versus Davis is an interesting case, and, and the, the merits of it are interesting. I really am into it, only to make the point I've just made to you, which is that I think it's a decision that reflects the shadow of damages liability under 1983. Any questions about Paul before we move on? The next case is also very controversial. It's... Heartrending facts this is a child severely beaten by his custodial father the father who was a flamboyantly a bad actor is criminally prosecuted and punished convicted but presumably he's judgment proof with respect to civil liability the government has agreed to provide services to this child who is mentally disabled But the mother wants money. Can't get money from the person who actually beat the child because he has none. So the government, so she sues the government officers. And notice that what she wants is money not for any affirmative misconduct by the government, but government, but money for a failure to protect. Now this case is famous in another another kind of ad hominem way. Some of you, this is also dated now, probably no longer surfaces, but this was prominent for a while because of Justice Blackmun's dissent. His dissent isn't very notable for its legal content, but it starts off, poor Joshua, and it is a highly emotionalized appeal to sympathy. People sort of divided over that. Some people thought it was a wonderful expression of human understanding and concern from a Supreme Court justice. Others thought it was uh, sensationalized grandstanding. I guess it could be a little of both. But in any case, it's, it's famous for reasons that are not particularly relevant to us here. What is relevant to us here is the difficulty this claim has in our constitutional system. I want you to think for a minute about the deep structure of American constitutional law. Let's start off with a very concrete and familiar problem, the problem of criminal law omissions. Right, you all know this from first year criminal law. Most most of the time, crime requires an act, an affirmative act by the accused. But not always you can be held liable criminally for an omission if you have a legal duty to act. But only if you have a legal duty to act. And the traditional reason given for that is that in the nature of things, lots of people's inaction may contribute to a bad result. To take the kind of example I used in the first year, if a person drowns in a shallow waiting pool and there are 100 people standing around, presumably, all of them, or most of them, cause the death, in that, but four cents, if they didn't step in and do something about it. And yet, the prospect of imposing criminal liability on on very large groups of undifferentiated people has always seemed unwieldy and in, in, in some sense unfair, so the courts have, for centuries, imposed liability for omission only in the face of a duty to act. Now, generally, our Constitution does not impose on the government any duties to act. It's an 18th century document. Constitutional rights are almost entirely prohibitory, right? They are a series of thou shalt nots directed to government. Thou shalt not abridge free speech, thou shalt not conducted in a reasonable search and seizure, thou shalt not inflict cruel and unusual punishment. But nowhere in our Constitution that I see is there language that can fairly be understood as imposing on government an affirmative duty. Now, I should say that state constitutions, which are newer than than the United States Constitution, sometimes do have affirmative duties, especially in the area of education many states have an affirmative constitutional obligation to provide free and adequate education and if you are an aficionado of school finance litigation which is a huge field jim ryan formerly of our faculty is probably the nation's uh, finest expert in that field if you're into school finance uh, litigation you know that some of it occurs under the federal constitution and the allegation is that the financing violates equal protection, but in many cases the litigation goes forward under state law because of state constitutional provisions creating an affirmative obligation, affirmative right to free and public education. So, state constitutions aside, the United States Constitution is entirely prohibitory. It only says negative things. Meanwhile, we have grown up a world in which the government has many affirmative obligations. The welfare state is a sloganistic way of describing a state of affairs in which the government has assumed affirmative obligations. Think safety net and so the government has assumed to care for, to provide medical care for people who can't afford it Medicaid or to provide welfare benefits or to provide a long list, retirement, Social Security but in many many of those cases the the relief sought, the relief provided is not what has been demanded and often is hinged about with restrictions but you see the broad point. The Constitution is full of a series of "don'ts," and yet the modern welfare state involves the government's commitment to a series of affirmative acts. Generally speaking, all of those affirmative commitments of government remain subconstitutional. Generally speaking, all of those things the government has to do for us are matters of statutory law not constitutional law and one of the most important statements you can make about American constitutional law is a negative one the Supreme Court has not constitutionalized affirmative duties there are things you might that might be candidates right you might think that we would have a constitutional right to housing or a constitutional right to medical care, or a constitutional right to employment, or a constitutional right to a minimum income. None of those things has been done by the Supreme Court of the United States. And in general, all of those all of those affirmative obligations of government which may be thought crucially important. Indeed, I think they may be thought much more important than many constitutional rights, right? If you had to compare getting a job with an illegal search and seizure, my guess is the former matters more to you most of the time. But our Constitution does not guarantee affirmative obligations. Now, there's a lot to be said about about that state of affairs. Let me make just two comments. There are two different ways of looking at the court's face. Supreme Courts, Warren, and conservative courts, Berger Rehnquist, there are two ways of viewing the court's failure to provide affirmative guarantees of health, housing, employment, etc. One way to look at that is that it is true to the history of what the Constitution was for. The Constitution created the government. The rights in the Constitution limited that government, disabled that government from doing certain things. The construction of constitutional rights as entirely negative is completely consistent with that original purpose and with that long history. And with the deep structure of American constitutional law. So that's one thing you could say. Another thing you can say, which seems to be equally accurate, is that the limitation of the Constitution to prohibitions is true to middle class values and interests. In general, the middle class has the wherewithal to do what they want is to stop others from interfering. And the Constitution is replete with with, uh, guarantees of great value to the professoriate. People who have incomes and wish to disable others from controlling or regulating them. But to people who do not have, to people who have not, to people who are poor and without jobs, homes, health care, the Constitution does very little. And you could see that as true to the function of constitutional law, and you could see it as true to the political dominance of the American middle class, my guess is that um, both of those have some accuracy now that's an aside but since it's a sort of mildly inflammatory aside let me stop and ask whether you have any questions or comments about it before I go back to DeShaney. well Descheney is trying to put an affirmative obligation on government and the um, as a starting proposition just that the government has a duty to protect this child against his custodial father it's a non-starter everybody see that just as a starting proposition that the government needs to compensate me because my father who had legal custody of me abused me and injured me permanently and caused me great injuries just as a statement of this should be true that's a complete non-starter the Constitution doesn't impose any duties of that sort and to my knowledge no government has ever assumed voluntarily obligations of a guarantor of safety so the theory of the case is not just that there is an affirmative obligation to protect for reasons I've tried to explain that's not plausible rather The plaintiff's argument is a version of the gratuitous bailey. You all know the gratuitous bailey. It's an enormously important concept in property law. Um, I could ask you to keep my dog for a weekend. You would have no reason to do that. And you would have absolutely no obligation to do that. And you could say, no, are you kidding me? I'm not having that damn shed machine anywhere near me. But if you decided to take the dog for the weekend, you would acquire an obligation to look after it. If you took the dog, even for free, you could not then turn it out on a highway to let it play. That's the gratuitous Bailey. If you take custody of something, voluntarily, you have to exercise reasonable care in the custody of that item, even if you're not being paid for it, even if it's not a contractual obligation. That same idea arises in criminal law cases where there is a duty to rescue. You all know this from criminal law. There is no general duty to rescue, right? If, if you see a small infant dying in the tidal pool, which is 18 inches deep, and you just don't want to get your shoes wet, well, you may be contemptible, but you're not a criminal. You can walk right by. But if you assume some responsibility, if you take the child out of the tidal pool and take it home to give it a bath and make it warm, and then neglect to feed it, they will prosecute you as a criminal. You see the difference? You have taken custody and control, and when you do, you acquire an obligation to exercise uh, reasonable care. Now, that's a very familiar idea, and the idea is, and it's it's, it's pre- it goes way back to concepts of property law like the gratuitous Bailey the idea is that if I take custody of someone I shield that person from the helpful intervention of others I acquire responsibility over that person not because I have it to begin with but because I have isolated that person from self-help in some cases and isolated that person from the fruitful intervention of others so for many old criminal law chestnuts that I teach in the first year somebody has a, 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 a person who's disabled by drug use or alcohol consumption and takes that person home and then does nothing in the face of emergency that is highly likely to be a crime of neglect where did the duty to care for the person come from? it came from isolating that person from the assistance of others if you left the person alone in the street the next person who came by might have helped him but when you took the person home you secreted him from the aid of others and therefore acquired an obligation to act reasonably in rescuing. does that make some sense well that same idea applies very straightforwardly to government government has no affirmative obligation to provide you adequate medical care they they assume an obligation but I mean they have no constitutional obligation to provide you with medical care or a job or a place to sleep or any of the other things that we would think of as the essentials of a decent life they can neglect all that constitutionally if they wish but if the government puts you in custody all of those obligations now rise right if you are a prisoner the government has to provide you with medical care i don't think any of us would be very pleased with the medical care we provided in the prison but that's a different subject they must provide adequate medical care if you're a prisoner because you are now their problem they have put you in custody and they must feed you right and in some other ways they must give you an opportunity to correspond with your lawyers and so forth but they must actually provide medical care sustenance housing that is not cool and unusual they must do a variety of things once you're in their custody and the the traditional understanding of that rule it is that it is it is, that, is that it is limited the government's affirmative obligation is limited to custody now if you want to identify what's really being thought about here think on the one hand of you and I living in an open society and the government doesn't have any obligations and then on the other hand of someone who's actually confined in a mental institution or a prison and the government does have affirmative obligations those two cases are clear right The huge dispute is about education. Because education has a little bit of the qualities of each. Education is not custodial, and the government by running public schools doesn't isolate children from the intervention of their parents or from the charity of their relatives or from the concern of private entities in America but the government does require that you go to some school and if you have no other options you are therefore required to go to public school and there have long been efforts to extend the government's affirmative obligations beyond custodial relationships to education well that's the background against which Descheney is litigated and against that background the argument here is quite radical. Procedural due process provides merely a doctrinal articulation. It depends on interest in liberty and property, those interests are created by state law. So, the argument is that when the government undertook to provide child protective services, in other words, when the government, as part of the welfare state, provided some mechanism for the supervision and oversight of child care and child protection, that just as if the government had put that child in custody, it then acquired a comprehensive obligation of affirmative care. To state the same point in federal-state terms, the, the the articulation here is that when the state voluntarily undertook to protect children, as all states do, right, with with child abuse reporting laws and some staff people and some inspections and people who can be called, that when the state voluntarily undertook to provide child protection, it gave you a federally protected interest in child protection, such that the state's obligation has to be discharged at least reasonably, at least adequately. And the Supreme Court rejected that on the grounds that you see, although it's a 6-3 decision. Any questions about training So i say again why we're t- hearing about it in a 1983 class. Because it's the prospect of damages that's driving this engine. The reason the plaintiff wants to extend government obligations to affirmative. Obligations wants to impose on the government affirmative obligations to protect children against abusive parents. The reason the plaintiff wants to do that is money to get damages. And the reason the court is unwilling to recognize that claim is because of the prospect of huge financial obligations incurred by states that do things in a half-assed way. If you want to think of it this way, this is sort of the old, uh, probably before your time, but back when these affirmative things were litigated, one of the things the Warren Court used to say was welfare reform can go one step at a time. By that they meant that the government can agree to do X toward relieving hunger or providing housing or providing some kind of jobs without doing everything to relieve hunger or provide housing or jobs. They can do one step at a time. In other words, they can do reform efforts that are incomplete. And what the plaintiff's theory in Paul versus Davis implies is that they can't. They can either stand back and do nothing or they can ensure adequate protection and pay money if it's not provided and what's driving that debate in this case is the prospect of money damages and those money damages at the state level are state tort claims you all know the state court claims run up against uh, state sovereign immunity and so there are issues there of just how much the state will agree to waive tort claims uh, and that's quite varied from state to state but this is an issue of federal damages liability for state defaults and that's an issue that arises by virtue of 1983. Make sense? Questions or comments about Descheney? Well, I have very little left. Town of Castle Rock versus Gonzalez. These cases get more and more appalling. Um, it's even more horrific, I think, than, than Descheney. Uh, and again it runs up against the same problem there are no constitutional rights guaranteeing safety you have all kinds of rights against the government injuring you by affirmative misconduct right although in my judgment the 4th amendment right against excessive force is one of the least successfully enforced of our rights. Everybody understands that there is a Fourth Amendment right against the use of excessive force by the government. Here, what's being asked is an obligation by the government to impose, to protect against the use of force by others. Now, against the background of what you've already heard, that the government has a whole series of thou shalt nots imposed by the Constitution, but that the government does not have affirmative obligations imposed by the Constitution. And given what you know about procedural due process, you can see why this large issue shows up in this uh, rather odd doctrinal way. Remember that after Roth versus Board of Regents, the Supreme Court has said procedural due process protects only three interests, life, liberty, property. You have to have one of those three interests before you get procedural protections at all. No life, no liberty, no property, no procedural due process, period. Now, if you have life, liberty, or property, and if that is taken from you by the government, that's the requirement of state action in the 14th Amendment, then you get some procedural protections. And what are they? Well, they vary a lot. Usually, we just dismiss the whole, that whole statement with the phrase "notice and hearing." You get notice and a hearing. Well, you get notice and a hearing depending on when it happens and how feasible it is to give the hearing, etc., etc., etc. You may not realize how elaborate procedural due process can be, or how minimal it can be. Right? I guess the most extreme is the death penalty, where you not only have all the panoply of protections of a criminal trial generally, but there are a whole series of particular protections, special rules, bifurcated proceedings, for example, that are articulated in the context of the capital sanction. And I guess at the lower end of the scale, the, the, the least procedurally protective uh, scheme I've seen is... Uh, spanking of school children and the spanking of school children is okay if somebody does it other than the person who was offended that's basically all it takes is the intervention of some some other person in other words in that case procedural due process means almost nothing. So in terms of what procedural due process requires, it's like a big accordion. It goes from almost nothing to everything you can think of, but it doesn't apply at all unless there's life, liberty, or property so the point of the litigation, I hope this is informative about uh, Castle Rock, the point of the litigation is to uh, an attempt to identify something that creates a liberty or property interest under state law now of course the kid has a liberty interest not to be the kids who were murdered have a liberty interest not to be murdered but they weren't killed by the government so that straightforward assertion of a liberty interest doesn't involve the right actor, doesn't involve the right defendant it's a perfectly good claim against the the father who did it but not against the government so what the plaintiff has found is a statute dealing with protective orders and on the back of the form which identifies for the law enforcement who got the protective order and against whom on the back of the form it says the police shall arrest and do the following and the wording of that form is apparently mandatory Scalia says for the court and I think he is in my opinion exactly right to say this that the apparently mandatory wording of that form does not overcome the enormous tradition of police discretion. Police are told they shall do all sorts of things. And yet that is not understood to mean that a police officer acts illegally if he does not enforce the law on a particular occasion. If in her judgment it's unwise to do so, she may just look the other way or say, there are too many people doing this same bad thing at this time for me to control them, and I'm gonna exercise my judgment to try to stop the activity without arresting anyone. Police officers do that every day, and that kind of police discretion, as you know, deeply embedded in our system, despite statutes that say the police shall do this or that. So when Scalia says, you've got a form here that has some mandatory wording, and that is a slight thing, to put against the enormous institution of discretion in law enforcement. He seems to be on pretty solid ground. And in my opinion, he is right as well, again, to say that even if the statute were mandatory, as I very much doubt it is, even if the statute were mandatory for government officers. In other words, even if the statute said, and because it's domestic violence, it could conceivably say this. I think that's what Justice Stevens is arguing in dissent. Even if the statute said, we understand that police ordinarily have discretion about enforcing the law, but we think domestic violence is an exception. Police have been far too forgiving of people accused of domestic violence, and the way we're going to attack that problem is to affix to police authority a mandatory obligation to arrest everyone who's accused, and then if the person most is going to be set loose, that has to be done by someone higher up. That's not a, that's not a ridiculous system. It's not impossible to imagine that it could be adopted but even if that system were adopted again Scalia says I think correctly that it's no evidence it has been but even if that system were adopted and the police had a mandatory obligation it doesn't follow that it would be enforceable by a private citizen For those of you who have had federal courts, think of the private right of action controversy. Nothing is more common that there are federal statutes that regulate who can do this. You can do this, you can't do that, you have to do this, you have to apply for a permit. Many of those statutes can be enforced by private citizens if the regulated entity doesn't do what the statute requires, but many cannot. And in general, the last place you can look to find a private right of action is a criminal prohibition court viage so is right on two things he's right to say that this this language in the state law is very unlikely to be a mandatory obligation on law enforcement to do anything and he's right again I think to say that even if it is it doesn't follow that the plaintiff has a private right of action But you notice there are two votes which join on on still a different ground, and that is Souter and Breyer. Liberals, by most estimation, and they join this majority opinion, and the reason they join it is they say, look, the plaintiff's claim in this case is tantamount to saying there's a federal constitutional right to the enforcement of state procedures. When a state sets up some procedure associated with welfare laws or with the criminal justice system or or zoning or anything else, that when the state law sets up a certain procedure which it is obligating itself to follow and this is as you will realize ubiquitous right everything the state government does it has some procedure for doing it whether it's whether it's issuing permits or classifying uh, property for um, zoning restrictions etc but anything the government does it sets up a, a procedure for doing it and Castle Rock comes perilously close to wanting to say that any time the state doesn't follow its procedure, it has violated a federal constitutional right. In other words, to state the point even more broadly, it's perilously close to saying that any deficiency in state law is a violation of due process. Now that may not strike you as shocking. I encounter people in law school mostly, but not not exclusively. I encounter people who have identified, as they think, some defect in state law, some failure of the state to abide by its own procedures, some problem in the administration of a state system, some error, some misconduct in the state, and say, well, that's a federal due process violation, isn't it? One of the most important things you can learn is that the answer to that is a plain, unadorned no. Violation of state law does not equal a violation of federal due process. Failure to follow state law is not in itself a federal constitutional problem just at that simple level if you fail to follow state law you violate state law you depart from the procedures authorized state law you violated state law but it does not follow that that equals an occasion for federal intervention you have to articulate that specially and what Descheney and even more clearly uh, Castle Rock are trying to do is trying to use procedural due process in a way that converts failure of state authorities to follow state law into a violation of due process, and so far the Supreme Court has been pretty clear in rejecting that suggestion. If it accepts that suggestion, the consequences will be enormous. And the reason they will be enormous is because of the background authorization of damages remedy in every single case by 1983. What are your questions and comments about this material? Well, we have one more class of a similar description. The class tomorrow is about procedural due process in 1983. And again, it's a class about federal constitutional law, which has been influenced or operates under the shadow of the prospect of damages remedy under 1983. Okay, we'll pick up there tomorrow. Thank you.